Hey, everybody, welcome back to Off the Couch on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're up to, including all of our other podcasts, over at blisterreview.com. And once again, we are broadcasting this episode from the Gunnison Valley of Colorado. And now would be a good time to start planning a trip here to experience our wide open spaces and do some running or hiking or biking on our vast network of trails here in Gunnison and Crested Butte. Okay, today we have got a really good and I would say a really important conversation for you because if you are interested in how innovation actually happens, let's call it the process of innovation, then this conversation is truly a must listen and you are in for a treat. Our guest today is Jean-Luc Diard and both his personal story and his long history of product innovation is fascinating and offers a whole lot to teach all of us. And so today we're going to be talking about both his personal history and his work experience, including where he grew up to his work at Solomon, starting as an intern and then working his way up to become the CEO of Solomon, and then also how he played a major role in Solomon's move into running shoes, and then from there going on to found Hoka One One, and then most recently and currently serving as the VP of Innovation at the Deckers Group, where he is involved in the very interesting work of what is called the Deckers X Lab. Again, I have to say that this is one of the best conversations I've ever heard, let alone been a part of, about the process of bringing about real innovation, how to make it happen, what to do, and what not to do. And so with that, let's go ahead and get to my conversation with Jean-Luc. Well, Jean-Luc, how are you today and where are you today? So nice meeting you. I'm in the uh, lovely city of Santa Barbara in California. How how are things in Santa Barbara, California today? Uh, just a bit chilly, which is good. The change of season is arriving. And um, that's uh, that's something that we are sometimes a little bit missing in Santa Barbara, where it, it's always the same temperature. But, uh, <laughs> but now, finally, the fall has arrived, which is nice. I am very interested in the conversation we are about to have because you are a person with a very interesting background and not just an interesting background. Uh, what you are doing currently is really interesting as well. So to to get started sort of in the present, tell us a little bit about what Decker's Lab is. So, so Decker's Lab is the innovation department of the Decker's Group. And it serves two purposes. Uh, one that is the, um, let's say, the classical innovation department that you can see in many companies. But where it goes one step further is that it is an incubator. It is something where we are 
pioneering not just new concepts, but new product categories. We may be pioneering new brands. Uh, we may be pioneering integration of other brands into the into the group. So, so we take innovation in the broader spectrum possible. And this is a, a big project that has started with the management of the company in order to help the group really move faster into new steps that otherwise are sometimes difficult to achieve in certain timings with your existing brands and business units. Very good answer. Now, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned the Deckers group. Talk a bit about what that group is, what are some of the brands under that rubric of the Deckers group? So the Deckers group is a very interesting group because it, uh, it covers actually all kinds of footwear. It's a group that is above 2, million, two billion uh, USD in terms of sales. And the, the biggest brand into the group is UGG. Uh, everyone knows the, the sheepskin feeling like nothing else. The, uh, the second uh, brand that is the growing brand is the uh, Oka brand, um, which is really growing very strongly currently. Then you have Teva into the sandal uh, outdoor uh, or the modern outdoor uh, market. Sanuk, which is also a casual brand uh, associated with uh, surfing lifestyle. And Kulabura, which is a brand that is in the uh, a smaller brand that connects with UGG, which is uh, more dedicated to the uh, lower price point, let's say, within this, this casual uh, area that UGG is covering. Uh, so the group is essentially doing uh, footwear, but uh, I started gradually to embrace also apparel, uh, first with the Yoga brand, now with the Yoga brand. Okay. Now, the obvious question is, how in the world does somebody get your job? And to get to that answer, we're going to now take it back to the very beginning. Um, like I said, you've got a really interesting background. So let's go all the way back. Where did you grow up? So I grew up in a, in a ski resort. Uh, and this, uh, this ski resort is the resort of uh, Tignes Val d'Isère uh, in, the, in the Alps. It's a very high altitude resort. And it's a place where we could ski some time ago, I mean, 365 days a year. Uh, so which leads uh, to naturally uh, a skiing background and by nature an outdoor background. I mean, because uh, when you are in those in those places, I mean, you you obviously do winter sport activities, but then you you bike, you hike, you do anything that can be done. You go into the rivers uh, that can be done into the outdoors. And so, when you were growing up, did you think of yourself as like a skier first, or were you sort of all of these different things that you just named, skier or outdoorsman? I started by really defining myself much more as a skier, as a competitive skier. That was the dream of every kid, logically, in, in a ski resort. And and uh, Kili uh, was, had just been, you know, when I was a young kid, Kili had just been the, the triple Olympic winner. Uh, so, so, so we were just into ski racing. But along with ski racing, the, the training was definitively around all kinds of outdoor sports. So, so, so while the focus or the idea was, I want to aim at being a champion in, uh, in, in ski racing, but then gradually, I mean, the, um, the, the passion and the, the practices, I mean, for the global outdoor were there at the same time. 
and and as you realize that uh, sometimes well that might be difficult to become the next whoever uh, champion at least you have all those other things that are really pleasant and that you that you really enjoy doing so talk about how you then went from ski racing into the outdoor industry the main thing was first breaking my legs in ski racing <laughs> so oh, no. which 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 kind of um, put a little bit of a pit stop into this uh, this trajectory to uh, to then say okay now it's time to probably focus on on my studies so then i i went to business school and uh, from business school then looking at what uh, the opportunities would be it was kind of natural to look at uh, brands that would be also into that world. Uh, so, but at that time, the notion of outdoor was was not as widely, let's say, seen as it is seen today. Brands were more defining themselves by their main categories. You 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 didn't even add winter sport brand. You are, you were there was a ski brand or a snowboard brand or a cross country ski brand or a hiking brand or all those things. So it was not this way, but I. I always thought that there should be more connection with those things. And the other thing that was that was driving me, I mean, since young, and that uh, that you can see when you live in a resort in a, in, a, in a very special way in some ways, is that you see people happy when you uh, when they come into your places. You 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 see them happy, and you make them happy. You make them happy by bringing them in tours everywhere, etc. And then growing up and going to different places, I mean, uh, in different cities for the studies and, and traveling and so on, you realize that the world is not exactly the same as what you see in a ski resort, which is a very, very specific thing. So that notion of, of helping people being happy, uh, I think, was somewhere unconsciously into the mind. But what what is it that, that I could do that could help, uh, let's say, bring this this joy of the outdoor this joy of uh doing something else to to a wide group of people so i'm really interested in this notion like you said that it used to be the case that brands used to be pretty narrowly focused and defined why do you think that was right like there was a hiking brand and then a ski racing brand why was that the way the world was shaped as opposed to today where we do see a number of brands looking to play in a broader space? So, so two things. I think the, um, the, the industry was still pretty young. I mean, don't, let, let's, let's say that uh, the development of outdoor products is, is more or less 50 years old. I mean, in, in the widest uh, sense. And, and then most of the brands had their own manufacturing. So as soon as you started to have your own manufacturing, then you, you kind of locked yourself a little bit with the means that you had, uh, focusing on, on those things. So, so the vision was, I'm gonna, if I do a company, I'm going to do also the manufacturing facility that goes with it. And, and the vision was also rather limited to the place that you were living into. So usually your country, very few had, had a broader vision, let's say, uh, around the world. So they did not realized that the sport could be seen, let's say, or the environment could be seen very differently across different regions. And um, I, I think that's that's the main thing. I mean, the it was small, smaller companies, rather nationally focused, uh, 
integrating their own production, and it was new. And then, and then what helped a lot was uh, there's the, the classical business case. I mean, obviously, of uh, of I want to grow, so how do I grow? So that's that's one thing. But there has been in every area also some crisis. And whenever there's a crisis because the market collapses at one point or the other, the uh, or your company struggles at one point in time, then, then you are starting to look at how can I balance my options a little bit more. The, uh, but the manufacturing played uh, played a big, big role in having people a little bit uh, reduced in terms of vision. Hearing you say that, it's funny. I find myself like slightly nostalgic for that. Like there seemed to be very some very clear pros and cons to that, say, older world and the world we inhabit today. So very clear pros and cons on both sides. I don't know. I guess I'm curious whether operating today at the end of 2020, if you find yourself nostalgic at all for the, say, older system, or if you think, no, 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 given all the logistics involved in running a successful company or a successful brand today, you're not inclined to go back to a prior system. I, I would say that I don't have too much of the, the, the nostalgia of it, uh, but I think it would be helpful in some companies that they have a sense of a better sense of what it takes when you have to produce things uh, and a better understanding of let's say yeah, all the elements that come into play into doing this uh, which would change a little bit also the relationship between like like a brand and some suppliers uh, and to to make it much more of a partnership than sometimes like uh, like uh, a one-way street in some ways. So this is evolving, uh, fortunately now. But I think people who have never been um, seeing what it means to produce something, I think they are they are missing a part of the equation. Um, and so, so it's not a nostalgia because it's a, uh, it's a very uh, challenging things. I mean, in terms of and and it 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 leads to uh, spend to to have you spend so much energy into the management of people, the management of of machinery, of space, etc., that you then lose time, uh, or, or you don't have the same, let's say, time available to think about consumer benefits and evolutions and things like that. So I don't have that nostalgia, but but I think that as if if most companies could have a real prototype workshop, a real limited uh, run of production nearby, they would be better companies in general. Back to your own history. You've talked about business school, and then I don't think we made it to the point where you actually start working at a quote-unquote outdoor company. So, so I uh, I started as an intern, like many uh, <laughs> like many people, um, in the uh, in the marketing department at uh, at Sutterman. and um, and that was the like the discovery phase. And uh, I was uh, while there were things that were. Uh, really pleasant to me. I was also thinking hmm, there are things that that probably could uh, could evolve a little bit uh, a little bit more. And uh, I had the chance to uh, to meet regularly with uh, uh, let's say the founder uh, Georges Salomon of that company, which was quite amazing because late in the evening he would go into the into the the, the factory, the departments, etc., and he would come to speak to anyone. 
you know, I was this young intern. I mean, just graduated. I was graduating from business school. And then he would start to ask me tons of questions about different things and, and so on and so forth. And I was quite quite afraid on one side of <laughs> of telling things, but but he was putting me in confidence and said, No, 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 don't worry and go go ahead and let's let's speak the truth and, and let's see where do you see things, etc. And the uh, and being uh, I mean doing all those different sports and and still competing then as as a student in ski racing and so on. So he wanted to do to know a lot of things, and and gradually this made me feel confident that well that's a company that that is really interesting because there is this guy who has the uh, I would say the head in the stars while having the feet in the ground, and uh, he, it it was pretty incredible as a combination of having real ambitions. I mean, in terms of innovation looking at the world really globally, uh, saying since the beginning, so, you know, we, we're in this country that's pure ads out. Our customers are all over the world. Everybody deserves to be treated the same way. And we need to, we need to constantly innovate. We need to constantly improve. Never, never stay on your laurels. Uh, stay humble and get going and be pragmatic. And then that's, uh, that's something where I said, hmm, I like this company. And uh, so then, then, they they offered me a job and it started. <laughs> well, okay, yeah, that has started. And let's see, you go from the intern at Solomon to eventually becoming the CEO. Yeah, yeah, in, that's pretty good. <laughs> in uh, in fifteen years. <laughs> in fifteen years. <laughs> no, that, that's the, the the chance that I have indeed that because you have to you have to be lucky also on those things i mean the uh, uh, it came at a time when uh, the company was looking for new developments and the uh, and very uh, as i was just coming out of school however the uh, george salomon the founder said look uh, i'm i'm interested in going into skis i mean the, the company was doing bindings and boots only at that time and do you think it makes sense? Are we taking too much risk, or what would it take to make it happen? And is there are there other things that we that we can do and should do? And um, and then he gave me the the responsibility. I mean, to say, well, what would you do? So and build me a project. And so a project was built, and on we went, and and it started. And the uh, so so it was pretty crazy. I mean, to uh, to have uh, let's say this this. Uh, confidence. I mean, being being given to young people, uh, and I had a, uh, let's say a, a supervisor as a mentor. That was the guy who was heading the binding department to have somebody of experience. But then the two of us worked out just a complete new project, and on we went. And five years later, we were the number one in the world. <laughs> the uh, the number one ski yeah, in ski, the world. Ski, yeah. Okay. You've moved entirely too quickly over this part of the story, so I'm, <laughs> I'm going to bring you back. First of all, how old were you when you were assigned this project to work on Solomon's first ski? I was 24. And what year was that? That was in 1985 that we started the, um, let's say, thinking about it. And, the, uh, and then it took us, uh, let's say, one year to do the pre-project. Uh, and then we started to uh, to really go. I mean, after one year, we decided, okay, now we have a concept, we have an idea, we want to go. And what took then a little bit longer because we launched only in 1989, it was the fact that we created a, a totally new factory. 
so so that was the the longer lead time, let's say, compared to sometimes some other projects. The uh, the concept was already there, but building a factory from scratch was something else. So had you always sort of thought of yourself as a product person, as a designer? Because so far in the story, you've just mentioned you were a ski racer who ended up maybe with a couple broken legs, <laughs> then went to business school, then started as an intern and were in marketing. That I haven't heard the part where you were always chalking up your own product designs or things like that. Tell me a little bit about how and why you got to the point where the founder of a company was like, why don't you design some skis for us? I, I think it's uh, linked to the fact that um, when, I, when I started my, my studies, I could equally have gone to engineering school or to business school. I, I decided ultimately to go to, uh, to business school because I felt that it had a, a broader potential. But my, my, let's say, natural background is, is somewhat uh, linked to engineering. And, and, the, um, and what I liked was, um, let's say, uh, through the different sports that I could practice. You, you, that's the moment where you start to realize, oh, this is good. This is interesting. This is, and you could, why, why are, are we not uh, able to bring this type of feature into this type of product or, or this type of benefit into this thing? So, so it's the... Uh, it's the ability to touch different, uh, different um, let's say, tools uh, for different usages that I think gave the sensitivity. It was not so much the hands-on. I'm not, I'm not mandatorily, you know, a, a good handcrafter, but the, but the sensitivity to understand what different things can do and, and starting to combine them. This, this, I think, was linked to yeah, using, using a, a whole series of different equipment. And so while I promise we will not turn this into a multiple hour conversation on ski design, I would like to hear you just talk a little bit about what was this sort of innovation when it came to this first Solomon ski, um, just to help people, you know, understand this roadmap of yours. But what, what was the big deal? What did you do different? So there were there were three things that were innovative into into the design. The main concept that everyone remembers is the monocoque construction, and monocoque is is a shell, let's say, where you apply directly the forces. I mean, that come from your foot directly over the edges. So the simple principle was to say, what the snow sees is are the edges. I mean, the uh, you are you are essentially let's say on. Uh, on angulated, let's say when you are, it's very, it's very rare that you are totally flat. And what you want is to have the most efficient transmission from your efforts onto what is going to touch the snow, which are the edges. The second thing that was associated to this monocoque construction was a variable profile. Because as you go toward the front or toward the end of the ski, you want to have something that is sliding, slicing the snow in a very progressive way. So we started to play with variable angles geometry, very much like a boat, the hull of a boat, the upside down. So the first thing was was taken from Formula One cars, which had developed monocoque. The second thing was was starting from uh, from boats, and then the third thing was what we called uh, peripheric weight distribution. So so instead of having the weight not being uh, let's say thought about, we started to play with 
distributing s- small stabilizing elements, notably toward the, the extremities into the front, on the side, so that you, while making something light, you actually are doing something that stays stable because you have distributed the weight exactly where it needs to be. So those were the, the, the first big things that drove the, the concept of what, what remained in 2D3, the first monocoque ski. But it was the combination of, of monocoque with variable profile, with weight distribution, and that gave a behavior that was ahead of its time at, at, uh, at that time with a look that was ahead of its time. And this is what led then the, uh, to just a, a, a phenomenal growth, I mean, within, uh, within a short period of time. So when did you start thinking about footwear? Footwear started in uh, around uh, 1995, 1996, where the ski industry, let's say, was, or the winter sport industry, was starting to struggle a little bit. And and there was something that was clearly visible, which was the fact that on the one side, you had the world of trekkers, let's say, that were using kind of sturdy uh, boots, uh, trekking boots. While most of the population was not really associated to this, they were using their running shoes, their flip-flops, whatever, uh, simply because they were more comfortable. But on the other side, they did not have any grip, any, uh, any features that are, let's say, also needed into the outdoors. And, uh, and the product that, that struck my mind, I mean, once that I was in the U.S., was simply the Nike Armada, the, uh, which was done by Nike ACG, I mean, a long time ago. And there was an, another brand also, um, Avia, that had done a product that was called the Los Gatos. And I remember seeing both products, I mean, at, at that time in the, uh, in the U.S. And, and bringing those back to the company and say, this is what we need to do. This is, where, this is where the future is going to evolve. Here we are bridging, let's say, different influences. And there will be really a market for that because I could not stink, I mean, wearing trekking boots. Uh, so I was using Adidas Nansmiths. I was using whatever running shoes, I mean, to be in the outdoor. But I knew their limitations. And I said... Oh, this is what I've been waiting for, and and somebody had shown me uh, like there is the there is an opportunity there. We should jump on that, and that will start to balance the the business of the company. Uh, so uh, so so I feel that there is a very strong potential. It was really you. You were the driving force to bring footwear to Solomon. So the the, the company had just started to do trekking. And the, uh, so, so Georges Salomon and, um, had, uh, had said, because of, let's say, cross-country, what we, what we see is that there, there, is certainly, there are certainly some opportunities to transfer cross-country know-how into trekking. And the head of the Swiss subsidiary at that time, uh, Walter Zibong, had made a, a, a prototype of one of the cross cross-country shoes uh, changing the, uh, the the bottom unit to put uh, a classical trekking bottom unit. So that was a very, very good idea, very innovative one, etc. to start with. But then we were into a world that was still very, very specific, uh, a little bit too uh, too limitative in terms of price point or in terms of uh, usage, uh, while, while the idea was very innovative. So, so that's where I... I Seeing this in the U.S., where people were taking it a bit differently than in the Alps, I was, yeah, 
that's that's just obvious. So so I so I brought those back and I said, we you know what we should not just stay onto this uh, into this tracking world. We have to move into a more multifunctional, multidimensional world with those type of local shows. And and yes, this I I think I have <laughs> contributed to get it started. And and then I brought it into the um, let's say I was in charge of the Solomon Design Center that we established in the U.S. So I was I was asked also by the by the company to say, all right, now what what would you think the company needs to do to to develop itself further? I said we and I said we can't stay just in France. I mean, as 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 much as I love Annecy, Chamonix, etc., it's it's too limited. The, uh, so we need to always make sure that we have a very global view. And having a, a design center in the U.S. would be a great thing. So then we started to look at some places, and then I suggested that we come to Boulder to establish a design center, and that into this design center we should tackle the sports that have, um, let's say, that that can be strongly influenced by the U.S. Uh, and uh, and so hiking was part of that. So, uh, so so we created the design center with a big portion for hiking. We created also uh, inline skate from there. We created snowboard from there. So 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 we started to create many things for which the U.S. market was absolutely uh, the major one. But above all, besides the size of the market, it was just just confronting uh, cultures and and always thinking that you know wherever you are from, you 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 are limited in your angle of view. Uh, so uh, so just I was saying, look at the Atlantic Ocean. When you look at it from the uh, from the U.S., you see it in a certain way. You look at it from Europe, you see it from a different way, and. And it's like for any product, you can see it differently. So, so we wanted to make sure that that we would have a global vision on those things. What year are we at now? When you start making the push to like, we need to have a design center in the United States. So, so everything uh, happened more or less into this ninety five, ninety six period, where where it was really the big question for the company. Uh, what can we do beyond winter sport? Uh, we need to we need to have a business that is much more stable. And and I was tasked to to say what's the vision for the future? And I said, you know what? If we want to handle the vari- the variations that can happen in winter sport business, the winter sport business should never be more than twenty five percent of our total business, which was a very bold statement at a time when the company. At, at 90% of its business that was winter sports related. So, so which leads you to think completely differently. So, and, and meaning starting to get into new categories. And that's where the, um, Georges Salomon, the, the, the owner of the, of the company said to me simply, I like, I like those visions. That's, that's fine. Now go and make it. Uh, oh, <laughs> so, so, so then, so then I had to, uh, I had to to do uh, to work uh, on the uh, on the hiking product. I had to work on the uh, creating the inline skate business unit, uh, creating the snowboard also because at that time the snowboard was booming, uh, and uh, notably in, in Asia was uh, was booming. Uh, starting to think about also going beyond equipment because you had you had uh, the company was focused on equipment. And then you had, let's say, footwear and you had apparel. So starting to look at the things also on a broader scale uh, like this. 
so the design center in Boulder in, in North America was really a great uh, move to that helped the whole company think differently, combine, let's say, engineering capabilities that you get from equipment, but with, with marketing understanding, marketing capabilities, let's say, all those things that you know very well, I mean, from, uh, from North America that are the absolute strong point uh, to, to combine. We have a tangent to go down here just for a minute. What happened to inline skating? Uh, you know, we're talking about the history of product design and emerging trends and the rest. And like inline skating was a real thing for a while. And it seems to have seriously receded. There are some companies that are maybe looking to like bring it back a bit. But but what's your take? What happened here? It boomed all over the world at one point in time. And that's why we, we went into that. And uh the, uh, then what I, I think that we also felt from was that the, the, the users ultimately were not ready to pay a, a price for the product that was um, associated with the cost that went into the product. So, so everyone started to really struggle. Um, the, uh, if, you, if you think about uh, a pair of inline skates that, that are sold, I mean, for $150, I mean, compared to a pair of shoes, I mean, that would be sold at that time or, or for 100 You still had to put a chassis. You still had to put wheels. You still had to put bearings. You still had to put a shell. So the cost of, of making an inline skate was extraordinarily expensive. And, and I think that everyone started to struggle with just the profitability of it on the one side. The... Uh, the second thing is that there might not have been as much development as anticipated, uh, let's say, of, uh, of roads or of, of places where you could practice it. And, and what came just after that, or more, more or less at the same time as that, is that mountain bike, I mean, bike, the bike evolution, let's say, uh, generally speaking, uh, the bike evolution was, became then the leading role in people switching more to biking than to inline skating. There was enthusiasm in the US, I mean, you know, also with, with the Tour de France and Lance Armstrong and all this the, uh, the, that was coming to, to arrive. So, so, so bikes, which started to evolve strongly in various, uh, various orientations, became just, a, just a, a more suited tool overall uh, rather than inline skates, which were a bit more limited in scope. And, and it had become a little bit too much associated to... Uh, to skating on the beach, and uh, so so there was there was also it, it became also a little bit out of fashion. But I think the the from a pure industry standpoint, the the cost was really a challenge, which led people ah, how can we continue on this? So marketing means reduced, and then and then as an alternative, biking started to take off. I can't believe I'm going to do this because I feel like I'm just about to fast forward over many, many <laughs> extremely interesting chapters. So I can't stand myself right now. But um, so as not to keep you for the next, you know, 10 hours here, there comes a time where you end up moving on from Solomon and starting a company called Hoka. Can you tell me a little bit about that move and that decision? I had the chance, I mean, within Salomon, as I said, to, to create um, lots of new categories. So I had launched the ski department, the inline skate, 
the uh, the snowboard department, the hiking, uh, uh, I'd made some acquisition with Arcteryx, etc. And there's always then a moment where you say, hey, what's the ultimate, let's say, in in uh, in a business life? And the ultimate in a business life is is create something from scratch with with your own means. I mean, the uh, with uh, with a group of people that you that you trust, that you think you can engage into such a journey, and um, let's try it. Uh, the uh, so 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 I had this uh, also this vision that uh, from crossing different spots that there were some gaps into the running world. The uh, there were gaps at different levels. I mean, one that was quite obvious is that the vast majority of the people were quitting running. Uh, let's say after you had been a, a young person, you, you just quitted it because it's, uh, you, you felt it was just too, uh, too challenging, not comfortable enough, etc. And on the other side, it's one of those parts that is obviously the cheapest, I mean, to practice, that you can practice anywhere, that is good for your mind, that is good for your body. So, so would be something good. And then technically, seeing everything that had happened in other sports, I mean, the, uh, you could see in golf, the oversized trend, in skis, the oversized trend, in cycling, the oversized trend. And then I said, hmm, you know what, when running, when we are running outside in, uh, on any kind of terrain, we don't have the, uh, the, the, the suspension and protection that other products are giving you. And it was typical in, in doing adventure racing when uh, we were, you, you know, in adventure racing, you switch in a multitude of sports. And typically you go from, from running to mountain biking, et cetera. And you say, shit, I mean, that, that you know, you, there are things that don't work when you are running. Uh, so can't we get something there that could be also something that would provide some benefits for the widest amount of people, even if they are just, just gently jogging one mile on the beach? Um, and, and gradually came that vision of saying, all right, I, I believe there is something here. Uh, I had also, uh, there was also one shoe that uh, had some influence on the rocker type, which was the, uh, the MBT shoe at that time. You know, it was pretty radical and it was, but just the, discovering that notion of an extreme rocker was, hmm, there's something interesting. And that was the time when, when also uh, winter sport equipment was experimenting a lot, a lot with rocker. And seeing that there had to be materials that could enable to uh, combine things differently. So I started to put a memo when I was at, actually at Salomon, I mean, on this, say, saying that there is probably something new to do. Um, it didn't materialize at that time. And then I said, I want to do that. I, want, I, I believe there, there is something really possible. So let's investigate that. And um, and then we started. I mean, with with people that uh, that were able to to share that uh, that vision, that had the same passion, that knew that it was a risky adventure. The uh, but but very quickly we we came to a few core concepts of uh, of this 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 rocker, this oversized cushioning, this those stability walls on the side. Uh, just those three things at the beginning that where we said this can can appeal to a really wide amount of people in a wide variety of situation and uh, and then it was about all the the industrial challenges because 
because this had never been done before. Molds were not done this way. Machines were not done this way. Foams were not existing this way, etc. So, so we had to overcome all those industrial challenges uh, as a tiny, tiny company. I mean, to uh, to to get it done, and and then also to overcome, you know, the laughing. I mean, the the, the people mocked him at the beginning. What's what's that clown show? What what you th- what you think <laughs> it's doing? And fortunately. We we knew that um, we when we bring something new, there's always some pushback. I had seen it. I mean, so often. I mean, into uh, innovative products that were that were brought into other categories. That I said, no worries. I mean, the we know that the people who experience it gradually, they start to like it and they start to appreciate what it makes. And and even if there's pushback, don't worry. And we learn, we evolve, we improve things. But. Uh, but we felt very confident that we had something special. And it was weird because at that time, you, you may remember that was there was the opposite trend in some ways of the on the spectrum. And there was one point that we had in common, which was a natural position. Uh, so, so that was something that we had in common. But obviously, from a cushioning standpoint, we had different points of view, uh, probably also because we, we came from a more uh, challenging environment, more of the mountaineering environment. Uh, but but we felt that if we wanted to have the masses, uh, let's say, be enjoying running, be and through that feel better. I mean, just just simply the uh, because you you don't have to worry about your knees, your hips, your uh, your ankles, your back, whatever. Uh, you you get in a better shape. If you get in a better shape, you're a more smiley person. Uh, you have a better <laughs> let's say image of yourself, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We felt relatively confident that we could find something that was interesting, and and on we went. Yeah. And what year is this? I, I'm wanting to kind of keep our timeline in order. When you say first, really start thinking seriously about starting Hoka. That was in 2008. Um, starting to think seriously about it, and we, and from there we went very quickly because I I. Uh, I left the position as, as, as CEO of uh, the Settlement Group at the, in 2008, in the, the early spring of 2008. And uh, after, let's say, a little period of thinking, what should what shall I do next? And I had different different offers in different uh, areas. I said, no, I, I want to try this um, this uh, entrepreneurial uh, approach. Um, and we started to work on uh, on the concept pretty much toward the uh, the end of 2008, just theoretically. And then early spring 2009, we had the first prototypes uh, where we started to say, hey, there's, there, I mean, the shoe was ugly. There was, there was, I mean, we knew that we had something different from everyone. And then we introduced, we presented, let's say, as the ultimate test, the shoes in, uh, in Chamonix at the time of the uh, Ultra Trail of Mont Blanc. At the uh, in the at the end of the summer of 2009, and we we wanted to have let's say consumers test it and people who had the passion. I mean, for for this, and what gave the uh, the green light uh, to the project was to see people who had been training. I mean, for two years. I mean, you know, to do to do this race and it was their their Everest and so on. And after they had tried the shoes, they said, "Hey, do you mind giving me the shoes? I mean, to to race." And and we had ten people, d- I mean, doing this, and we said, 
All right, sure. I mean, if you if you trust yourself, I mean, please hear all the shows. I mean, first, go out and run for one hour uh, just to just to make sure we don't want you to 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 feel insecure. No, 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 no. We I, we feel absolutely secure, and then we knew that we had something because when you have, um, yeah, an extreme adventure. I mean, for those people, a dream of them to take the risk of taking something new was thumbs up. All right. You'd already left Solomon at that point. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. Yes, I had left. Uh, I terminated with Solomon in the spring of 2008. So I'm just trying to figure out. You sound very calm and casual describing this whole thing. If I was in your shoes, there would have been some nights where I definitely was not sleeping at all out of terror. I am not hearing that tone in your voice or that part of the story. You, it sounds like you kind of jumped off the cliff. Yeah, but but not 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 completely. Um, let's let's say there were um, different things. I mean that that helped do that. I mean first, I had been confronted with with innovation for quite some time, so I I, I had the experience. So it was not just the first time. I had uh, had the chance to drive uh, innovations in a multitude of of categories. And uh, that helped big time. The second thing was to also set boundaries, was to say, all right, I'm going to invest up to this amount. Uh, and that was the agreement with uh, with my wife, I mean, first, to say, you have to be ready to lose X amount of money. Okay, so uh, so that's one thing. And you say, that's that's fine. And then the, uh, the, the third thing is that um, I also worked as a consultant, I mean, at that time for different companies, notably the Technica Group, uh, which I helped for. I helped the Technica Group to, uh, to, to restructure itself, to reorganize itself. So I had also some revenues on the, uh, on the other side. And, the, um, and it was the combination of those things of saying experience, uh, surrounded and also ability to surround yourself with, with people that, that, uh, that are good people, ability to accept that you may lose things. And, and still have uh, 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 some flow of revenues at the time where you are, you know, <laughs> uh, getting all your investment, I mean, down. But to say, hey, it's, it's trying it. Yeah. That's so good. So you, just to recap that, one, you had innovated a number of times in different areas. And so you were more comfortable seeing that initial pushback that initial friction, the resistance to change, resistance to the new idea. So you that wasn't a new shocking thing for you to see. Financially, you also were able to cap your risk or your downside on that. Those are two key things right there. I'm just going over this because I think this is really interesting for a lot of people that are going to start anything or do anything new in the world. Those are two interesting things. And, and arguably... You know, I think we could say you were in a fortunate position to be able to not have to push all your chips to the center of the table where some people do. Right. Where if this thing fails, you're screwed. But you you, you have that's where I think it's important that that's what I, I said to many people who were asking me what, what would be your number one, uh, let's say, advice to things. It's um Put a cap, let's say, on the things that you you are, and comfortable is a big world, but that you that that you know you can lose that, and it's not the end of the world. That you may rebound, even if you have put 
all your things on the table. But but you have learned so much also at, uh, by doing it that it's going to be an asset for for uh, for the future. Uh, what is critical I- here is your family also, obviously, and not not only your wife in that in the, in that case plays a major role in accepting this to to happen. Uh, because on the one side you say, hey, this is the money we have put aside, and uh, and why why would you put that at risk? I mean the uh, so uh, so so that's an important uh, element. But it's it's part of it. And when you once you have this that is clear, it's not starting with something where. All right, I I've put that money. Now I need to put more. And now I need to put more. Now I need to put more. You 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 set yourself the bigger frame, and you you break it down in different steps. And and you you say, okay, now we have reached that step. That seems to be checked. Okay, let's move to the next one. You know that you are increasing a little bit some risk because you are putting more money and so on and so forth. But it is on your on your path. It is still on something that you, the people surrounding you, etc., are are in agreement with. And it's very important to have this um, since the beginning dialed on because you know that you have 80% of chances, if not more, to fail. So so you have to accept it at the beginning that if you fail, you fail. It's okay. The, uh, but you'll have, you'll have learned so many things around it. And then you got, as you were telling us, you got to that what must have been a wonderful moment when you had these new shoes, prototypes more or less, and elite runners, or just if not elite runners, people who were now asking if they could have those shoes to go carry out a dream race, like the the race of a lifetime, that must have felt good. And I bet that is where you were like, I think we got something here. And that was that was really interesting because the those people who, who, who were passionate about it were not the elite runners. I mean, the elite runners were a little bit Mm, skeptical, like like it is in every time you bring an innovative product. I, I could speak to you about when we when at Salomon we brought the short skis to ski racing and nobody wanted to use them till young young racers came with it and crushed everyone. So it's a, it's a little bit the same story there. But we we saw that the mass of the population were really interested, and then we started to uh, to to speak with uh, with top athletes. And starting to see how they would look at it. And one of the things that was also really interesting is that they saw the ability to recover on the one side, which was everyone who was not sure about racing, let's say, with them. At least they saw some benefits into some other areas. Then we had one athlete who was coming from the, um, the, the track and field. And he said, you know what? If you, want to, if you want me to use those shoes, I'm going to do just one thing. I'm going to race a 10,000 meter on the track. And and I'm going to see which time I'm going to have in, in racing on the track. And he did the same time as he did with his spikes. And they said, and he was blown away because at the, in the first half of the first 5,000 meter, he was behind his time. And then he started to catch up into the race. And then he was, then he, he took the lead and was just beaten in the final sprint. I said, "Who? Here's a shoe. I've been I've been doing uh, 29 minutes. I mean, on the uh, on the 10k with a big, fancy shoe. Uh, this is this is quite amazing. Uh, and so that gave us the other confidence in saying, not only can it um, can it appeal, let's say, to a broader group of people, but it it probably can appeal also to uh, to to better athletes." 
And then we had a series of things like this that started to happen where, where Boulder Running Company uh, was uh, started to see the show, and it was it was a phenomenal story. I mean, with my, my partner, Nico Mermoder. But uh, the uh, Johnny Alberstadt, who was uh, an Olympian uh, runner, etc., discovered the concept, loved it, started to speak about that. And uh, a couple of, I think it was in, at the same month, uh, a, a woman started to went to his shop, and she was going to do the um, uh, the hard rock, and the uh, and she took the shoes, and that woman Diane Finkel uh, took the lead of the race ahead of all the men for for eighty miles, and so 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 that was like wow, the. Uh, so, so we, so, so it's a series of things like this, you know, on the track, on the trail. I mean, that started to uh, to arrive, and you say, hey, whatever, whatever people are criticizing, whatever jokes they are they are saying, etc. There's something special. Let's let's continue to fine tune it. Let's be totally humble, and uh, but there is something special. Talk to me about the transition from Hoka to. Decker's lab. Well, it's two steps. I mean, one one is was the sale first of, of the Oka brand to Decker's, um, and uh, just a few words on that. I mean, the uh, the former CEO of the of the of the group, Anil Martinez, who was uh, an outstanding runner, was looking for some options, and he got in contact with Johnny Alberstadt, who, who said to him, "Hey, there's something special," and we. Um, and we had discussions with uh, with Anil and uh, the, the CFO also of the company at uh, at that time, and we felt very good uh, in um, in talking to those people, uh, and we knew that whatever um, uh, we would be able to do by uh, by our own, uh, there would be clear limitations in the development of the of the brand uh, just as standalone. I mean, we, it was very difficult to get any. Financing. I mean, from the banks, uh, we could get some private financing, but it, it just brings finances, but it doesn't bring additional aspects. Uh, so, a, a group that was already in footwear could bring a lot of additional synergies. Uh, so, so that was the first step in saying we need a partner, and we found Indecors a great partner. The the next thing. Uh, so then, then we did the, the sale and. And we started to have this uh, this trajectory going up because then you have a group that has the means to set up uh, a sales force, um, uh, uh, marketing means, and above all, to have all those industrial network that you can rely on um, supply chain aspects, which which makes then your products start to become competitive in terms of price point and so on and so forth. So 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 this moves the brand uh, the brand starts to develop. But quickly, you see that when you transfer the brand into a, a, a group, then people start to get very different views and different things. And and what what fortunately the the management of the group started to say, hey, let's pay attention to things. Let's make sure that we continue the the, the right path. So let's make sure that the uh, the people who started it stay involved at least for some time, just to keep it on track. And then. And then it came to the to as as the group so the let's say the the, the company continued to grow. Well, what about um, learning from that and applying it 
on a broader scale to the group. Uh, every brand, even uh, even if you are not in the most technical, uh, let's say, area, needs to continue to innovate. Uh, so, so this is the the, the proposition that uh, that the group did. Uh, first, in a more in a in a rather classical way, and then with the um, the, the top management that is in place today, with with Dave Powers as the CEO and and David Lafitte, I mean the CEO. Then the question was, uh, it's always difficult to transition innovation into brands. You know, there's there are multiple reasons for that. Uh, uh, one is maybe it's not uh, my immediate priority. Uh, the second thing is, you know, the not invented by me syndrome. Uh, then it's just the, the understanding sometimes of I'm, I'm not sure about this. And, and the people looking for permanently safety, let's say, have you tested this? Have you? Well, well, when you innovate, you know, you, you, you have to, they are taking a few risks. And uh, so, so we said, all right, there will always be this kind of struggle, which is inherent to any company you, 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 you go to. So can we do something different? And this is where the concept of Decker's X Lab came into play in saying, we, we need to shorten uh, the time between the moment that the concept is ready and the moment that it comes to market. And why is it so important? Because when you have an idea, you can, you can be sure that there are at least five companies in the world that have the same idea as you have. Everybody has processed the same information, uh, has the same means. So, so never think you're alone to think about something. So, so if it takes then two years uh, or you're very much at risk of having somebody come in earlier than you do. So, so instead of waiting this, we said, let's let's create Decarzix Lab that is going to bring product to market uh, as an as an experiment. Let's say on the on the one side for the group, but not as an experiment for the users. It's it really is is targeting, let's say, real user benefit, and starting to tackle also categories that can be really interesting for the group for the future. So this way, we we are first to market. We test with consumers. We test industrially. When a brand wants to take it, and that's what we are doing constantly, transfer the innovation, I mean, into the brand. They, they have access to anything we do, and we present it, obviously, all the time. But at the same time, we are proving the concept toward consumers and industrially. So when we want to transfer it, it's good, it's ready to go. And the brands can just make it their own by, by modifying the design, I mean, adjusting the parameters. We help them usually in, in, uh, in transitioning this. But this way, you, you provide, uh, let's say, uh, a portfolio of, uh, of opportunities that otherwise would be blocked because, because if you have many, many decision makers uh, into the thing, you know that as, as soon as the, the, the number of decision makers, I mean, uh, starts to, uh, to increase, it becomes exponential into the risk of saying no. So, so, so you, have to, you have to have a short, uh, a short track, and that's what we are doing. It's going to take a massive force of will on my part to let you off this call anytime <laughs> soon. So um, I have so many questions. Um, first of all, I want to back up for a second to you mentioned this notion of not my invention syndrome. I love mm -hmm. that. I, I'd like to hear you just talk a little bit more about that and how like, is that a problem that you 
ran into a lot at Solomon or you just are aware that that is a very common thing or maybe it doesn't happen all the time, but it happens enough over significant decisions where it could truly end up changing the trajectory of a company's fortunes, right? If you somebody blocks a really good promising idea because it wasn't their own. Talk, talk a little bit about this notion, not my invention syndrome. It's First, it's a very natural thing. Uh, it's not something specific to any group, to any company. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's something that is natural because you, you, um, uh, it, it changes uh, you, when, you, when you want to push something special, it, it changes a, a bit things that are established. And um, the, you're always afraid when you run a business to say, what can I gain and what can I lose? And, and you, you, uh, there is not just the business part of thing, but there is also, am I at risk in, in allowing this to happen in my function? And can I lose my job because of that? So, so that's an absolutely, uh, let's say, fair fear. Uh, and you, what, whatever you bring, you need to leave time uh, to have something sink into the people's mind. So, so, so you bring something, you make them try. Uh, you you uh, you make uh, you make tweaks in the design so that it, it gets familiar to things that they know, etc. So that they just you know you you, you want to accelerate the process uh, into people's mind uh, in terms of understanding uh, the thing and being able to criticize it at the same time. So it's not you know not every idea is good to take. I mean the, clearly the. Uh, uh, but it's like you sometimes you look at a new car and you oh I loved I I I dislike this new style I prefer the old generation and you know that three months later four months later you can't stink the old generation it looks now very old so so that's the process that you want to go internally uh, to to facilitate that and and not feel uh, ashamed because people are not embracing the idea immediately you you need to have this period of incubation. So that the people can come back to you, they have dissected what they think is interesting, what they think is is not so good uh, or or not so much adapted for their brand, and then you can propose uh, uh, an update, let's say, of those things that uh, that then oh okay now I get it, and now let's let's bring it into our range for that collection with that spirit that tweak and so on, and let's have our designers start to work on it, etc. So. So it's something that is um, totally normal, totally logical, but you knowing it, you have to really work on all those things so that it's not uh, listen to what I said, this is the truth and uh, and this is not the truth. This is stupid. It's not this. It's uh, you want people to be able to criticize also the new ideas that are coming uh, because you gain into pertinence of the idea. You improve it uh, strongly. So you are stronger when it comes. But if at the same time you are able to to do uh, a little uh, a little take of that that you bring directly to market, and as we can go, uh, let's say, direct to consumer now much more than than before, then you have tested things at the same time. So 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 you, so it creates much more opportunities now or options now than it used to do. Because if you were to go also to um, to retailers, then the question would be. Oh, what is that for? And uh, how are you going to support that? Blah 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 blah, blah etc. So, so all the, the 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 reasons that make an innovation, I mean, not exist. First, usually it's it's internal. 
then it's the network of retailers, let's say. Uh, and, and what you want to do is, is work on all those things to kind of accelerate the, uh, the understanding. Got it. So tell me if I've kind of got this right. You already spoke about first thing, try to shorten the chain of command to be able to get to a yes. Don't have 93 people that all have to sign off. Um, you'll never get anywhere. Someone will throw up the roadblock. So you've talked about trying to shorten that chain of command. And then if I've understood you correctly, trying to move quicker with sort of a small batch of products that we can get out there more frequently with fewer costs, fewer stakes, and then just get to test those smaller batch responses. Totally. I'm 200% right. Okay. So it sounds like you brought this idea to the Deckers group. This was not, this culture was not, no disrespect to anyone whatsoever. I'm just trying to understand the actual progression or story here. You came to the Deckers group with this sort of idea, or I would not call this the most common approach. I talked to a lot of companies. I would not say like, oh yeah, of course, everyone has this system in place, right? I mean, lots of companies do now have things. A lot of tech companies do have things like their their lab projects, their blue sky projects, whatever you want to call them, um, their skunk works projects. But this still feels a little bit different than that. Yeah, I, I think what, what makes it, um, generally speaking, different is the, uh, the fact that I, I've been running uh, pretty significant businesses short. So, so um, I don't see innovation as like an idea or an invention. I see innovation as something that, that can become uh, a sustainable business for a company. And the, and, and the management of the takers group, which is, which is also uh, uh, very open-minded and that uh, uh, the, the CEO, for example, David Leffitt, is, is a former attorney. Uh, and he was the one we, that did the acquisition of, uh, of Oka. So, so he likes to look at things a little bit differently in the non-classical corporate way, and so, so do they for us. And they had seen innovations that they could, uh, through products, that they could test, and where they were saying, but why does it, why does it take so much time, I mean, to, uh, to come to market? So, so, so we both came together and started to brainstorm about which were the, the opportunities, and, uh, and we came together, I mean, to, to this type of conclusion, let's, let's give it a new dimension. Uh, we, we exchange at various moments on the, on the topic, and at one moment they say, all right, let's go, we do it. <laughs> which is huge, right? So you, yeah. through your experience, have gotten used to sort of what we might call this process of innovation and sort of how it works and how to maybe bake innovation into a company's path. And then that needed to get married with someone who was willing to, as you said, look at things a bit different and kind of saw that, got that kind of vision. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's pretty good uh, yeah no it's uh it's it's and it's an interesting it's it's really interesting and the uh i, I when i was in a in a ceo position i mean the uh the decisions were easier for me to do obviously but but fully understanding i mean what 
what uh, a listed group, I mean, uh, has to go to, and uh, that you, you you can't expect things to materialize immediately. If you and I said it always to the people in in, uh, in my team, don't don't feel ashamed if uh, if something is not working while you while you are absolutely confident that this is a good idea, etc. It is normal. Just just wait, and you'll see that things will arrive with tweaks, with different things. But but I said, as the world gets more competitive with with digital, generally speaking, uh, the uh, the the speed to market becomes really fundamental, and and that's where you can't you can't let those ideas in the air. I mean, I I've, I've seen I mean through my experience patents in a in a similar uh, area. Uh, in three different regions of the world, so uh, U.S., uh, Europe, Asia, being filed within one day, completely different companies, completely different things, same area. So, so I, I have this experience. I've seen it not just once; I've seen it multiple times, where there are those those short windows of things. So, so I know that when you have an idea, the rest of the world has it. The, uh, it, it takes a, it takes a lot, and you 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 have to. Yeah, you have to be patient. You have to be, but but the, <laughs> the ability to uh, the ability to bring something to market to test things, as you as you mentioned in 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 sh- small batches, in small steps, etc. Uh, upgrade, update regularly. Uh, this is really what is what is a phenomenal uh, luck, let's say that we have that the, that that the group enables to do, and that I I believe the group will benefit quite uh, quite big time. The continuous yes. Yeah. Tell me, I've been calling it Decker's lab, but there is this X. What's up with the X? So 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 the X is it's two things. Um, fundamentally it's crossing this and that, this times that. So 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 you take something that exists somewhere and you blend it with something that exists elsewhere. And and the main thing that we are trying to do is bring uh, performance attributes into the casual world globally speaking so the uh, so so the technology usually comes from the most performance driven uh, type of product usually also equipment uh, but if you apply it to footwear innovations start usually into the high end racing world you have seen all the the developments i mean coming uh, coming lately into this but those uh, are at risk of staying into a little niche, uh, and and what we are trying to do is is to bring those things. I mean, for a much wider group uh, of of users. If I make the parallel with the with the, the short skis, to as you are in Crested Butte, when those those short slalom skis started to arrive, um, then it revolutionized ski ski uh, skiing, not just in ski racing first, but then for everyone. All of a sudden. Two meter long sticks became 165. I mean, uh, uh, very manageable for everyone. So it's that same idea that what that what we are trying to do is every uh, vision that we have and every development we do for pure performance. How can we bring it in totally different categories in an unexpected way, where people don't mandatorily have uh, unsatisfactions, but where you can elevate the the level of performance the level of references in something that is unexpected uh, so 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 that's really what we are trying to do we are taking the casual world of Hug, the sandal world of teva etc uh, and we are going to elevate this uh, to raise 
dynamic comfort. I mean, that's that's fundamental. Uh, the uh, to raise uh, what we what I call smart performance, which is how do I get the maximum efficiency for the least amount of effort, as well as smart adaptation to my body, to the terrain that I am in. Uh, and and then the, the the last thing is how do we combine all those things so that we make it for a better planet? Uh, and the notion of making it for for a better planet is is both enabling people to be active and as well as sustainability, uh, working on on sustainable processes, sustainable materials, etc., to push it further. Okay, but I still want to know about this X. Should I be calling this Decker's Lab or Decker's X Lab? Decker's X Lab. Okay. So Decker's that's Decker's <laughs> X Lab. So so I said it's the combination of those two things together: performance and and casuals. Uh, and it's uh, we we tend to call it sometimes uh, experiences in in uh, in feeling good or in feeling great. What we want is is any users. I mean, true that uh, have an elevated experience in in feeling good. That's that's really the, the 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 point. But we combine things in an unexpected way. This is so interesting. On the one hand, when you started Hoka, the idea there was to start this new, significant, strong brand. But with Decker's X Lab, so please correct me if I'm wrong here. On the one hand, you could be wildly successful at your role. Even if Decker's X Lab stayed very small and sort of under the radar, if you were developing products that then really were successful under the Hoka brand or under the UGG brand, am I? Do I have this right or not? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the first thing is that we are at the service of the brand, so so everything we do is testing on behalf of the brand. So that's really the, always the first priority. And then when we when we see some categories that we are not in uh, at the moment, uh, and if we have a concept that we start to see that it has some potential, this could become a new adventure for the group. Uh, so so that's where we that's that's the notion of uh, where the incubator goes one step further, where you you after you have let's say filled the brand, which is the first priority, could it give birth to something else? That's also the ambition, the ambition that is part of the project. But you are right in saying that we don't need to be big uh, in order to be successful. Yeah, which big. is such a yeah. different... I, I mean, to be honest, I, I came into this conversation very much thinking that I was talking to someone who was now looking to start a big, new, strong brand. I'm talking to someone who's running an incubator. Those are two different things, kind of. <laughs> And 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 if something has, has some potential, we'll make it big. But, but yeah, but we, it's but the first thing is definitely helping the existing brands within the group develop uh, and give a portfolio of options for the future. We need to talk about really, really huge, monstrous, fat heels that stick out really far behind <laughs> a shoe, because. Um, we may or may not have made fun of this look at some point on a previous Off the Couch podcast, mm. uh, specifically with reference to certain Hoka shoes. And I'm seeing this carried over to some Decker's X Lab shoes. So 
talk a little bit. This is your chance to talk a bit about why it's beneficial to have this kind of balloon heel looking thing sticking out so far behind the shoe. Yeah, so so um, we are not going to change the, the foot of the individual, but we can change the way the foot interconnects with the ground in various situations. The, uh, the first shoe that you have that you refer to, which is called the 109, is, uh, is something that has been engineered first and foremost for like more extreme situations. So, so typically running downhill fast on, on rugged terrain, uh, because that's a situation where if you, if you take uh, a slope, let's say, you are not, you are, it's going to be extremely difficult for you to land on, on your midfoot or forefoot. You are at 99.9% going to land on your heels. And the, uh, and you want to have something that uh, by the time that you get contact with the ground, you, you, you want a multitude of things to happen. You want to have a better grip, a safe grip. Uh, you want to have stability. You want to have proprioception. And you don't want to have uh, something that is a brutal shock into your body. So, so, so we started to work this, uh, this big pad into the rear, pretty much like if your foot was becoming symmetric. Uh, imagine this, I mean, in a, in a different way that your tibia would be into the middle and that you had, uh, you, you had a, a symmetric foot. So, so this gives you this, this very, very progressive landing. So, so then, it, then uh, when you move beyond that usage and now you start to apply it for, uh, let's say, a more classical situation, you don't need to be as big. But the, but the, the starting point uh, remains valid. So, so when you start to extend a little bit the, um, the, the rear, you, you, by the time that your shoe touches the ground, so you immediately have proprioception, okay? That's the first thing. You know, you know where you stand into the, into the, the space. Then you, then you start to have a deformation of this, uh, this zone in contact that is going to give you grip, stability, and the first deformation before before you are actually by yourself pressing anything and getting any uh, any shock, let's say, coming from the ground. So so you have something that is much more progressive uh, that into the first transition of the of more of a walking or or in running when you are a hill striker, which is still the vast majority of the of the people. So so what you see is from an extreme product. In fact, you see takedowns that are arriving, and uh, and you'll see uh, small extensions. You'll see medium extensions. Uh, this is where, uh, let's say, we don't need to be as big as when you run down in the outdoor. But the benefit of uh, of extending it is really something that helps the fluidity of your stride big time. And so, those people who have the position that one should never be heel striking they're not going to be excited about this development, right? I mean, that's just a different, that's a different camp. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so provided, provided one thing, the, um, uh, if you, if you are a, let's say a, a light person, uh, midfoot, forefoot striking on a shorter distance and that you know that you're able to sustain that, absolutely no interest. Now, if you are still a good runner, but you start to go the distance, I mean, like you are in a, uh, you're a triathlete or you're a marathon runner, etc. 
there's a reason why you have seen also the Nike shoes with extensions into the rear, with those big foams into the rear, etc. Um, the, because there's always a moment where you start to be tired. And when you start to be tired, you want to have this additional assistance. So, so what it needs to be, the way it needs to be done is that it, it needs to be brought with the, the minimum swing weight so that on the rest of the time, it's not something that you have to carry. Uh, but, uh, and then for, let's say, the, the vast majority of the people who are going to be jogging, walking, uh, and, and naturally hiking also, uh, because uh, then this is an asset. Because think think about hiking. It's it's one of those weird situations where people enjoy going up, and they don't enjoy going down. Normally, normally it's quite the opposite. I mean, you you you. So so why is it that they don't enjoy going down? Because because it takes a lot of time till the moment you reach contact with the ground. You may slip. You may uh, you have the shark, etc. So, so, so all those things are happening into the hiking world, but it's the same also when you are hiking, let's say, walking into a city for some time. This, uh, this is just a smooth benefit, uh, benefit for uh, for you, and 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 you'll see various developments arriving. Uh, I said with with various geometry, it doesn't need to be huge, uh, but it's really it, it really. I encourage you to to make a test on a shoe that has just a straight heel. And the shoe that has an extended ear, and you'll very quickly see the uh, the benefits. Like I said, I have promised not to keep you hostage for hours on end today, <laughs> so we're going to do this. If you promise to come back for another conversation where we can talk again about certain product design concepts and the like, we can start working to bring this conversation maybe to a bit of an end. So does that sound okay? No, no, with pleasure and. And the the other thing that if you if you want that um, that we could uh, tackle are a few innovations like uh, if if you want to connect it let's say like like the the when we brought the short ski and why we brought the short ski that brought the the, the carving revolution or things like that just to make a connection also with things that that are in into the equipment world. Uh, that have transitioned into masses and then make it make the same parallel once again. I mean, with Baker's X Lab products. So, so it's it's taking things where it starts from uh, the idea of uh, um, let's say you think about a, a sports person that is looking for a recovery shoe, and then you bring it into further into the daily life of people. People don't know that they need it, but once they try it, gone. It's a notion famously attributed to Steve Jobs, right? where we're not trying to give people the things they want. People don't know what they want or what they need. And mm. that's a bit of a next level. Now, there's a lot of potential there for things to crash and burn. If you're like, we're going to bring to market a product that no one yet has identified as being a want or a need. But when that's done right, it can be kind of game changing. Yes, yes. That's that's really. I mean, you 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 said it perfectly. Innovation is not so much about uh, solving a problem, because quality of products usually is, is pretty much there. It's very seldom that there are things that are absolutely bad stuff. But it's it's just really elevating references by looking at things from a different angle in a very critical way, and and starting to combine things that have never been combined together. So that's where the X comes into play uh, big time. And the, um, 
who who needs a, a, an SUV coupe with 500 horsepower? All right. Uh, initially, nobody would have thought about it, and then and then you see what happens. So tell me where Decker's X Lab is today. If people are interested in checking out what you all are baking up in your ovens over there, where should they go to find these things? What, how many products are released? What do your product rollouts look like? Tell us a bit about today. So, so today we are exclusively on uh, the website. Uh, the website is called DeckersXLab.com. And we have uh, very interesting new products, but it will continue, as I said, on a, on a regular basis. There will be new concepts coming. Jean-Luc, thank you. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. And uh, thank you for not only sharing your interesting background with us, but this was such a great conversation on just the idea of innovation and the process of innovation. And I can't think of anybody in basically any walk of life who couldn't find some pretty important notions to take from this. And so um, that is a pretty rare and valuable thing that I think you have shared with us. And um, thank you. And uh, I'm just going to say I'm looking forward to our next conversation. It, I, I mean, I really thank you. I, I, I really enjoyed every second of the interview. So, uh, so really thanks for that. Uh, thanks for the opportunity, of course, in, adi in addition. And uh, yeah, pleased to to, to come back, I mean, uh, for, uh, for a session with you when, when you want. Thank you, Jean-Luc. Take care. Well, that's it for this edition of Off the Couch. Thanks to Jean-Luc for the conversation. Thanks to the strikingly handsome Justin Bob for producing this episode. And from all of us here in Crested Butte, Colorado, please be safe. Please take good care of yourself and everybody else. Please keep moving forward. And we will talk to you again next week.